two of my, I'm not going to call them resolutions, but themes that I want to follow this year for myself are beauty and absurdity. And they go together very nicely. To do things that are beautiful or absurd that don't necessarily have any explicit end goal or point to them. And I don't view that as a waste. I think that a lot of breakthroughs can come from taking your eye off of the productivity <laughs> track for a little bit at the very least and focusing on that. So what if you could spend pretty much your waking hours sitting down with some of the most elite performers across nearly every domain from uh, health to art, from business and investing to athletics, nearly if you can think about it, anywhere somebody has risen to a level of mastery and expert performance. Well, today's guest, Tim Ferriss, has devoted pretty much his entire adult life to doing just that. And along the way, he's been deconstructing their processes, adding on his own awakenings and syntheses, and sharing what he's learned in books, in media, in podcasts. He's the author of a, a huge new book called Tools of Titans. And in that, he actually shares so many of these lessons, so many of the conversations with the hundreds of elite level performers that he sat down with in his podcast over the last chunk of years, along with a healthy dose of stuff that he's figured out along the way. This conversation really takes you inside Tim's personal journey. We, uh, we, we share a little bit of a crossover in that we were both brought up on Long Island just outside of New York, so we have a little bit of a conversation about what that was like and also how that formed him and his lens on prosperity and wealth and the choices people make around that. So really interesting conversation. It takes you a little bit behind the scenes of what made Tim who he is and how he thinks and where he's headed. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. The show is sponsored by meditation app, 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. So I think we have, like, it's so funny that actually we have so many friends in common we've never actually yeah. hung out before. We both grew up on Long Island also. Mm -hmm. Where were you? were out in the East End. Yeah, I grew up as a townie in the Hamptons. Which so, Hampton? Uh, East Hampton. Ah. Right outside of East Hampton, but I was born in Southampton Hospital. Yeah. And then grew up, yeah, rat tail skateboard. There you go. Bussing tables. Was, were you a skater? 
Yeah, I mean, terrible skater, but yes. Yeah, was, I was good at getting injured. Was Northport Pipeline still around when you were, or was that out? Uh, I think that was out. Okay. I think that was out. Yeah, or at old. least it was out as far as my parents were concerned. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of fond memories of getting injured there. Oh, okay. yeah. No. No, we, built, uh, we built quarter pipes, which you couldn't even really call a quarter pipe because they were basically just triangles yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out of plywood and then spray painted them and proceeded to get right. gr- grievously injured. Yeah, it's like wherever you land, you land. We, we used to go, I had, I grew up in Port Washington, which is, oh, sure. for those who don't know, where, where Tim grew up is basically the east end of Long Island splits into two different forks and the south part is this place called the Hamptons, which most people know of because of all the glitzy, fancy people who go out there. Yeah, and, or the TV show The Affair. That. And <laughs> the lobster roll, which is featured in that series is where I had my second ever busing job uh-huh. and got yelled at by people from Manhattan all day long. Uh, <laughs> so now we're hanging out in Manhattan right I know, now. I know. You're walking around, I hate you, I hate you. <laughs> I've, had to, I've had to reconcile this, those war, warring factions of myself. Yeah. But yes, I'm on the South Fork. Yeah, and I grew up in Port Washington, which is this little uh, peninsula in the north end of the island, which actually, if you've ever read The Great Gatsby, is, is the actual original East Egg. Mm-hmm. The flashing green light. Yeah. So this is interesting because, so my town had a different way. I mean, Port had a lot of, there's a lot of wealth in my town, but it was like wealth that kind of lived there and it was quieter. Yeah. And where you grew up, there was like 10 times the amount of wealth, but it yeah. was like, real, this is where people go to flash it. And as a townie, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, tell me about that. Well, you have a few different breeds of, say, Manhattanites who come in. They're not all from Manhattan, but you have the summer people, as they're affectionately or not so affectionately known. <laughs> who come in, you ha- you do have old money. The old money's fine. So you have the Rockefeller type Yeah, you got Gatsby to prove like at money. That point. They, they're yeah. driving around in a beat up Volvo. They right. just don't have, it's, it's so passe to flaunt their wealth. They're like, yeah. we've had money for 200 years. <laughs> We're over it. <laughs> then you have the newer money, but self-made. So for instance, say Billy Joel, who would come in. I also was a bus boy at a place called the Maidstone Arms, mm. which is now great. It's been completely redesigned and actually edited probably a third of Tools of Titans there. But the Maidstone Arms, Billy Joel would come in, I think every Sunday, get a coffee. And this waiter did me a huge favor because he knew I wanted to meet Billy Joel. And he said, you can, ser- you can serve him the coffee. Hmm. And so I would serve him coffee and he would tip $20. And he was very, very yeah. cool and very gracious because he'd had shitty service jobs before. Right. Then you have two types that are just terrible. You have the can't quite afford to be here, but really want to show off how much money I want to uh, convey to people that I have. Terrible, terrible. And there's a lot of that. And then you had the married into or somehow indirectly fell into money who are also pretty horrible. And Because <laughs> uh, so, that's got to have to have formed so much of your association with wealth at any uh, age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents are extremely frugal growing up. And never made more than say 50 grand a year combined, yeah. which isn't poor by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the discrepancy, I mean, humans are positional right. yeah, economic engines. Yeah. So the have and the have not discrepancy is gigantic in that area. My friends, I never did this. And I'm actually, that is the truth. I, I never collected hood, hood ornaments, but my, some of my friends collected, you know, Mercedes hood <laughs> ornaments and so on from cars in town. And, uh, I think that there was part of me that had a lot of resentment towards people with wealth. 
And then there was part of me that wanted that aspired to be successful, like say the Billy Joel's who are actually very approachable and mm. would talk to a 12 year old, 13 year old kid for 10 minutes and be cool about it. So I think that that conflict probably lived in me for a fairly long time. <laughs> did, did those four sort of categories, did those, is that something that you've kind of come to later in life reflecting back or were you kind of acutely aware of their different ways to live with wealth when you were younger too? Definitely saw it when I was younger yeah. because the behaviors were so dramatically different. They were like different breeds of humans. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time there was this woman, the Duchess of such and such, and she brought in her you know, five or six uh, lady friends with all of their kids. So this is a gigantic 15-person like, table, primarily kids. They're throwing bread all over the restaurant, making a racket. It takes half the staff to manage this table. They sat there drinking coffee and eating croissants not really putting in any orders for hours and hours. It got to the end, and they said to the waiter or the the matron of the table, the matriarch, she said, I usually tip really well. Better luck next time. Because for whatever reason, I guess, hadn't picked up the bread every time within a second. Wow. Zero tip for wow. the entire staff. And it was a shared pool. So we just we got bombed for the entire day. So the difference between, say, that and in my experience of Billy Joel was black and white. I mean, they were completely different. So I, I was very aware of it very, very early. Yeah. And sort of like what money can do to you. Um, yeah. It just makes you more of who you are. It's like alcohol. Uh, yeah. I think that's true to, to a certain extent. To some extent. Least. Unfortunately, um, exaggerates the negatives more than the positives. Yeah. Generally. It's funny. I, I, um, when I got out of high school, like my summers, I spent a couple of summers actually out in East Hampton, but I was more, I was, you know, I didn't come from money. And when I was out there, you know, I found a room in a house somewhere. It was usually like a, you know, like a beat up old house. And I was like a day laborer. Yep. So I was painting houses. Sure. Or I was, and I remember the same really interesting thing. There was actually one astonishingly wealthy family that had this house on the beach, on the ocean. And, you know, like, I spent probably half the summer inside painting this house. And it was gorgeous. I was on the beach. But it was weird for me because I was surrounded by all of this during the day. And... My association much more was as a townie. Oh, sure. Because we go out at night. Like, I didn't have money. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, I was covered in paint. <laughs> you know, I'd go out. This was back when you could actually go out, like, and beat up old board shorts, bare feet, and a tank top. Yeah. You know, whatever the local dive was. And um, and it was, it was, I remember sort of, like, the conversations talking with, like, the locals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and how much... It was this really, really fierce level of resentment. Yeah, and I, I will say that, unfortunately, the... Real life is a bit like the internet in the sense that I think we have selective attention towards perceived threats, i.e. negative whining, complaining, when we translate it to a restaurant or a forum or a thread on YouTube, whatever it might be. So when you're a busboy or a waiter in a restaurant, you don't notice the eight people yeah. who are totally civil and well-behaved. Yeah, completely fair. You remember the two people who are complete bastards. Yeah. And that's what you carry. And when you have that experience night after night after night, and in the Hamptons or in Nantucket or in wherever, Vinny, wherever yeah. resort town, almost all of the locals work in some service capacity. right? And it's unfortunate. But I've come to realize that the quaint romanticized image I have of the locals isn't quite accurate either. 
they can be a real pain in the ass. So, I don't know. Ripping off uh, car yeah. emblems wasn't quite quaint. Around, no, right? yeah, that's not so quaint. That's more. No, but yeah, yeah there's two more, sides of that story, no doubt. Oh, yeah, yeah um, for sure. Yeah, but it is really curious how sort of early experiences like that can really form associations with, well, like, do I have a choice? Is this just how people become when you reach a certain station in life or achieve a certain amount of wealth? Or do you, you know, like, you, and it's good to sort of see, no, this is a choice. Yeah. Like, this is money. Money does not equal a certain behavior towards others. It's a choice. You know, you can yeah. have it or have not, and you can choose to respect or to not respect others. Well, it shows you, in a sense, who people really are also. And it does take who you are takes uh, or is informed by conscious choices, certainly. But I think that money shows you how people behave when they no longer have to be nice Mm. or feel as though they don't have to be nice. They don't have to kiss the ring or get on bended knee to have what they want in life. And there are a fair number of cases where you see people change. It's not always true. Uh, But, I mean, if you want to look at the things that don't change, the people who are, say, miserable before they have money, when they have a little bit of money, are generally also miserable when they have a lot of money. Yeah. It doesn't, those are things you have to work on separate from economic station, for sure. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. It's um, it's amazing to, there was much later in my life, I ended up sort of being in service of some incredibly wealthy people. And I noticed that exact same thing. It bought them out of nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, it really... If you were unhappy, if you were struggling, if you were having identity issues coming into it, it actually, I, I almost feel like it made you more fearful. Well, I think that it's, uh, so I've known a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people who've uh, committed suicide, friends of mine in high school, friends of mine in college. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, a, there's a documentary I saw many years ago because there were some kids I indirectly knew in the movie uh, in very unflattering ways uh, because I went from, it's called Born Rich, and I went from high school, public school in East Hampton, to then boarding school in New Hampshire, mm. to a place called St. Paul's, where you had a lot of old money. Right. Not just old money from the U.S., but from around the world. And it gives you a very clear picture of this documentary of why it doesn't solve as many problems as we would like to think. But here is, I think, in part why there are so many suicides among the wealthy. Because they can no longer fantasize about incremental growth in their wealth fixing their problems they know it doesn't so i think that for for instance even speaking personally in, in say 2000 2000 to 2004 end of 2004 i thought living in silicon valley if i could just get to x yeah. or get to y I could just stop. I could ride around on a sailboat and take X amount of interest and everything will be fixed forever. And then you get to that point, whatever your number happens to be, and you're like, oh, wait, I'm still the same person. I still have the same neuroses. And the financial band-aid doesn't fix it. And I think for that reason, when people handle the basics, so they they handle the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shelter, et cetera, and they get up to the higher points, money doesn't help you. And then they feel like they have no escape or no remedy, and that's when people make really bad decisions. Yeah. Um, no, that makes a lot of sense also. How come you ended up going uh, up to New Hampshire for high school? Because a number of teachers and one of my friends who had left East Hampton, East Hampton tends to be a bit of a, I think the Hamptons in general tend to be a bit of a vortex 
yeah. for people or a black hole. They they very rarely leave. A lot of mm. a lot of folks born, raised, stay there, have families, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I hadn't traveled a whole lot, and a number of the teachers said to me, in effect, like if you want to be so the big fish in a small pond, that's mm. fine. But we think you should actually <laughs> stretch huh. yourself and try something else. And uh, one of the one friend who had gone to boarding school was like, dude, you got to get the hell out of here. And that's how it started. Began looking at these boarding schools, knew nothing about it, but looked at five or six and was able to get some scholarships and then have my extended family, also my grandparents and other people help when I was finally accepted and uh, transferred, which was a huge kick in the solar plexus because I went from coasting pretty easily yeah. in this public school where nobody really cared to a school where it's six days a week, classes end at, at 6.30 p.m. They oh, wow. start at 8 a.m., oh, mandatory chapel, uh, seated meal, coat and tie, like Dead Poet Society, mandatory sports. I, did, I was just hammered. I mean, it was very, very tough for me the first, say, six months. But then after that, when, I, when that became the new normal, yeah. Everything after that, academically, even Princeton, was relatively a cakewalk. So what helped that become the new normal for you? I think, we, I think that uh, after a while, when other people view it as normal... It's just... It's just it normal. Just is, yeah. It just is. And your humans, like any other animal, adapt to these external stimuli and internal and much like going to the gym, your work capacity improves over time yeah. if you're doing it properly. And you also have, it, fortunately, when you move from a place where you're, say, one student out of 40 in a class to a place where you're one student in six in a class, there are more support structures in place. Yeah, it's a lot harder to get lost also. Yeah, it's a lot harder to get lost, and it's a lot harder to get distracted, in a sense, because you're in the middle of the woods in New Hampshire. You're no longer, you no longer have the recreational right. options. <laughs> this is like pre-mobile device also. Yeah, so it's like, yeah. yeah, you're pretty buttoned down. Did you ever find sort of like the Robin Williams teacher there? Yeah, I had a number of really influential teachers during that period. One was uh, Reverend Richard Greenleaf, uh, I'm not particularly religious myself, uh, but what he did was was went far beyond religious doctrine of any type. He was uh, a residential advisor in my first when I first arrived, and really helped to keep me afloat and keep me encouraged, and ultimately encouraged me to apply to Princeton, which my guidance counselor had advised against. Hmm. How come? This is such a sad story with a happy ending, but it's it's indicative of perverse incentives. So humans respond to incentives. And if you think about it, guidance counselors who are responsible for college advising are judged by what metric? Well, the metric is what percentage of the students who advise got into their first choice college. Right. What's the easiest way to game that? You make everybody lower their right. standards. Because everyone gets that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that, was, that was part of it. So Richard Greenleaf was one uh, Coach Buxton, who was the wrestling coach, was huge. Is that where wrestling really took hold for you? Wrestling took hold a little bit earlier, probably around 10 years old, because yeah. I was very hyperactive yeah. and also very small, which is a terrible combination because you get your ass kicked <laughs> a lot. And the wrestling was the only weight-class-based sport, so the puny kids could battle the other right. puny kids. So and I could actually equalize it on some Yeah, level. you could actually yeah. develop some sense of self-esteem <laughs> as opposed to just getting your head pushed into the gravel during playground every day. And... Then it really matured in high school. 
And then the last person I'll mention, there are others certainly, but is Mr. Shimano, who is my Japanese teacher. So I went from Spanish. I assumed I was bad at Spanish, Mm. but language was mandatory. So I dropped Spanish and one or two of my new wrestling buddies were in Japanese. I was like, okay, well, I'm interested in Japanese culture. I'll just do Japanese. If I'm going to be bad at a language, I might as well do it in a class where my friends are. And I excelled in part because of Mr. Shimano and then was offered the chance to go abroad for a year. I'd never spent time abroad. And my first time abroad was a year in Japan as an exchange student in a Japanese school with a Japanese family. Nah. And uh, that, was, that, was a real, that was a real inflection point for me. And I think that f- there are very few things, if I ever become a parent, that I will insist on. One will be sports, competitive sports. Another will be a year abroad in high school at some point. And mm. I think it's just such a formative, incredibly powerful experience. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, it's something that clearly is is still such a deep part of you. And you're just sort of your deep fascination and connection with Japan. Oh, it's huge. I'm going back in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, and I'm still in touch with my host family from when I was 15. Why do, why do you think we don't do that? Do you think it's it's a money thing? Do you think it's just we don't value what the actual transformation that happens in that type of immersive experience? The, the year abroad or a gap year. A gap year could also work, yeah. which is very common in, say, the UK in between high school and college or even college in the so-called real world. Uh, there are a few reasons. Uh, one could certainly be financial. I mean, that's that's right. a real thing. Uh, although there are options that would be cheaper than staying in the U.S., right? You could always go to, say, Costa Rica or right. someplace in, in South America. Japan doesn't have to be the only option. Fortunately, these two schools had a sister program, so a lot of the financial pieces were yeah. taken care of by the schools. But I'd say, two, a lot of fear on the part of parents uh, who I, I cannot tell you how many friends of mine I've spoken to whose college choices were narrowed down to one or two based on how close they would be to their families. And it wasn't their choice. It was their parents' choice. They were like, no, we don't want to fly across the country. It's so far away. We won't see each other. So go to this sort of C-tier school instead of an A-tier school. That's horrible. Uh, You do see a fair amount of that. And then last, I would say most people, and this would include me, say, in high school public school in Long Island, don't even know it's an option. It wouldn't even occur to them that it is out there, right? I mean, I'm involved in, a, for instance, a nonprofit right now called QuestBridge, which puts about half of the economically disadvantaged kids uh, who go to Ivy Leagues into the Ivy Leagues. And part of the way they do it, and this is just one of the many tools in the toolkit, but they'll have, say, an iPad giveaway mm-hmm. in an area where no one has ever applied to an Ivy League school. And the iPad giveaway is behind the scenes, a standardized application uh. that can get submitted to schools. And so you have these kids who wouldn't even fathom applying to a school like Harvard or Stanford who have the intellectual horsepower, who are diligent enough, they fill this out and then they get a free ride. But it, it wasn't even on their menu of options in their mind. Yeah. I think going abroad is very similar. People think it's impossible, but they've never really investigated it. Yeah. No, that, that actually, of the three things that you shared, I think that's the thing that jumps out at me the most. Um, yeah. It's funny, as you're talking, also, and spinning through my head, I have a 15-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. so we're kind of in the early stages of all yeah. this right now. Um, and, and we've actually said to her, we're like, go wherever you want to go, because we'll just go close by wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. We're like, we'll just follow you. It's, like, yeah. it's all cool. Like, we're pretty mobile the way we built our living. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, I think it is interesting how, how much of the big choices that we make in life are sort of controlled by um, those around us or those who are really close to us, like they're not wanting to 
hurt them or, you know, like move too far away from them. At the same time, while that's definitely limiting in terms of, you know, what you do with a kid, my sense is that there's the opposite phenomenon as soon as a lot of people get out of education these days, which is, you know, if you look a couple of generations back, families stay together a lot more. You know, if you look at your, if you look at everywhere except for the U.S., yep. families generally don't leave each other. You may not live in the same house, although a lot of them do, but you may be in the same compound, the same town, the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the ethos in the U.S. has developed over the last few generations of, like, the moment I'm out, I'm out. And there's no sense of let me be in proximity to my parents, my cousins, my family, my friends, just like I'm going to go wherever I need to go. And I think there's some good to that. But yeah. I also think that we're losing something from it. I agree. I, I read a, an article that had a huge impact on me. It was recommended to me by a guy named Matt Mullenweg, who's yeah. considered the lead developer, or one of the lead developers of WordPress, which now powers 26% of the internet, <laughs> and is the CEO of Automatic, which is now worth more than a billion and has hundreds of distributed employees. Fascinating guy. He recommended an article to me called The Tail End by a guy named Tim Urban, who has a site called Wait But Why, which is fantastic. And everyone should read The Tail End. And The Tail End effectively describes it in much more eloquent language, but makes the case that I, th- I think at the end of high school, when you leave, you've, you've used up 80% of the total hours you will ever have with your parents mm. over your entire life. And that put a lot into perspective for me, especially because I think it was weeks later, it might have been months, but I think it was weeks later, Matt's dad passed away. Mm. And uh, very unexpectedly, but Matt had been spending time with him. And I was like, wow, this is something I need to recalibrate because my parents are on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast. I, I see them a fair amount, but not as much as I would like. So I st- I've, for the last number of years, been taking family trips, at least twice a year, extended trips have been spending a few months of the year on the East Coast near my parents and spending more time with my brother and really prioritizing that because I do think we lose something, but alas, it's a big country. It is. I People mean, I think, get spread out. I know. That's the challenge. And I think technology on the one hand makes it better and also makes it worse. You know, it, it gives us the ability to be more in regular contact, but also, you know, there's the asynchronous conversations, there's the questionable effect on empathy um and it's just not the same it's not i mean if you're hanging out with your brother yeah. across the table having dinner it's just not the same like jumping on skype or whatever it might be yeah we're more similar to chimps than we would like to admit <laughs> uh if you watch any video of chimpanzees or in any type of tracking or observation by zoologists say or primatologists over time look at how often they hug or touch mm-hmm. one another it is constant, yeah. and I think we have a very similar need, which is why I've built more of that into my life as well through things like acro yoga or dance or other things. And it is highly therapeutic and highly necessary. So I, that is a piece of the puzzle that we can undervalue when we think that FaceTime equals hanging out and giving someone a hug because it does not. No. Similar, but not the same. Yeah, no, completely agree. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test 
test and optimize and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life is an all is perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. And, and I feel like we're also missing, um, you know, we're hardwired. We have to belong. You yeah. know, when we belong, everything gets better. When we don't belong, we basically die just slowly and it causes enduring yeah. pain. But I really feel like we're losing a lot. Of it. I mean, if you look at, you know, what are the primary things that have given us that sense? You know, it's been family and that's getting more disparate. It used to be employment it used to be like you'd go somewhere you like you'd sign up you'd work and then you like 40 years later you'd retire and there was a real culture and community that's over yeah people are fleeing faith you know like left and right or at least tradi- they're not fleeing spirituality but they're they're fleeing traditional religious communities mm-hmm. um and that was one of the primary sources of belonging so it's kind of like where do we get that now Veganism, CrossFit, Paleo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, pick I your religion. It's, it's if like, you don't think those are religions, <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. I think they, they have, are. They have their demigods. Yeah, whether it's Greg Glassman in CrossFit or one of the top athletes, Rich Froning, and you have the same people in each of these sects. Uh, and it's they also have their dogma. They have their commandments. People get ostracized. Yeah, you know, woe unto the vegan who says, "I think my hair is getting brittle." Maybe I should add in some more fat, and then boom, you are out of the community. It's your fault. You're doing it wrong. And that is, I think, a perhaps a bigger danger is when people belong to religious groups or cults, and I don't use that in a totally pejorative sense, and don't realize it. Dave, mm. hey, tell if, me more. If you're aware of it, yeah. meaning, okay, I'm in a group where there's a lot of dogma, where people might be calling themselves nonconformists, but in fact, the entire group is doing the exact same thing. Whether I live in San Francisco or Venice or New York City or wherever the place might be, Boulder, Austin, I mean, there's certainly many, many other places. Being aware of the social conventions of your group, no matter how small the group is, I think is very important. And it makes me think of a conversation, not to steer this towards money, but it, it's a good illustrative point that uh, one of my close friends was thinking of he's effectively an advisor to billionaires. That's what he does and works with a lot of hedge fund managers and other types of folks. I guess they call themselves wealth 
managers now or asset managers since the, the hedge word is, has become a, a black mark for a lot of folks. But regardless, these are people who make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And my buddy asked him, well, what is the biggest difference between millionaires and billionaires? Actually, you know what? This is, I take it back. This is a, a friend of mine who is a writer, uh, Neil Strauss, eight-time New York Times bestselling author. I was thinking of Adam Robinson, who has similar observations, who does have the job I described. But what is the biggest difference between the mindsets of, of billionaires and millionaires? And this particular billionaire said, billionaires don't, the most important thing is to re- is to question or reject the social norms of your time. Hmm. Not to, at face value, accept the norms of your time. And that's worth pondering, I think. So the uh, you don't have to, being in a small group doesn't by definition make you a nonconformist. Yeah. If you're just adopting whole plate, some book of rules that the alpha fill in the blank hands you, whether it's through a bulletin board or through a pamphlet, it's the same. Um, so that's, I don't think being a part of any of these groups is bad. And we're all parts of groups, whether we want to admit it or we not. Have, if you we if, have to be, unless you're the Unabomber, like you right. have some social fabric, right. uh, but it's useful to be aware of that and ask yourself, like, well, okay, what are the 10 commandments in this little community or big community? What are the shoulds and should nots? What are the must do's and must not do's? Yeah. And, and I'm always curious also, and I, and I love that. And, like one of the the other questions that I also tend to ask when I sort of see this is how much of my own identity and autonomy am I, am I willing to sacrifice in the name of getting the sense of belonging that I get from this experience or being one of these people? Sure. And because there there's there's no there's no belonging without some level of surrender of identity and sort of autonomy. Like it's just how much, you know, where on the spectrum are you willing to go? Yeah. And how much are you willing to nod your head and say, that's really interesting when in your head, you're thinking, I completely disagree. Right. And I gave you a perfect example. I mean, this is not a popular topic necessarily, but I love, I love marksmanship. So I have guns and I have (laughs) ammunition and so on. In San Francisco, that is like, you might as well be a serial killer who's making lampshades out of humans. I mean, you are such a pariah if you have <laughs> any type of firearm. And it's it's entertaining at times to sit down when, if that comes up somehow in a dinner, dinner conversation with people who have labeled themselves progressives and, and pride themselves on being these open-minded liberals in a place like San Francisco, and they lose their minds. Like, they, they, they do not... The, there's very rarely a curiosity about it. It's an immediate battle. Uh, and that's what I think... That's the type of behavior that is is good to keep a lookout for, whether it's in the people around you or in yourself, right? What am I reacting to? What are other people reacting to as opposed to responding to? Those are, I think... Yeah, profoundly different things. Very different things. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the meta skill, like the differentiator there is attention. It's meta attention. It's the, you know, the ability to actually understand where your attention is and what's happening. Zoom the lens out and say, huh. Yeah. What's really going on here? Um, which so many of us, I think, have never cultivated. I know, um, you know, you've spoken to this a fair amount, and this is one of the things that you've kind of keep coming back to over the last couple of years as you sort of deepen into your work and your body of work and sit down with so many high performers is that it seems like almost everybody 
um, who reaches a level of real high-level performance has some level of attention-focusing, mind-stilling practice. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's, um, that is moving into the population pretty quickly these days. And at the same time, it's becoming almost like mindfulness is kind of like the new authenticity. And I fear there's a risk of it sort of, you know, this beautiful, really powerful practice kind of like <laughs> jumping the metaphysical shark. Yeah, like be- becoming a... <laughs> Right. Having like a supernova uh, of destruction when it hits a certain critical mass. Uh, Yeah, the the commonality, and I've thought a lot about this because I've struggled with a way to categorize it. I'd say 80 plus percent of the people I've interviewed for, whether it's the podcast, you know, the Tim Ferriss Show or for Tools of Titans, have some type of mindfulness practice that we would recognize Mm. that fits the standard definition, whether that's using Headspace as an app or listening to a Tara Brock guided meditation or sitting down and doing TM, very high percentage. But you might ask, what do the other 20% do in lieu of that? And I would say that the if you were to try to identify how mindfulness fits into a larger category that applies to 100% of the people, it's training the ability to single task, Mm -hmm. and it's the ability to observe yourself so that you're not standing outside in the storm, you're standing inside looking through the glass at the storm, and you're able to assess it. So you might find someone like Jocko Willink, retired Navy SEAL commander, who is like, meditation? Are you kidding me? I mean, and he does it in part as a joke, but it, it it would be very difficult to find someone more present state aware than Jocko. And when you sit there and you talk to Jocko, Jocko is looking into your soul and paying every ounce of attention to you. And he would call it, say, detachment, where he can step back in a very high-stress, dynamic situation and assess things impartially outside of himself. But that is exactly what you might do in, say, a type of seated meditation where you're noting, oh, thinking, oh, feeling, oh, whatever the distractions might be. It's same, same, but different. And one just has a spiritual tilt to it in terms of language, and the other has a military tilt to it, but it's the same thing. And single tasking, it's like when Jocko deadlifts, Jocko deadlifts. <laughs> it's, and it seems like a, a really primitive example, but it's not. It's actually uh, really profound when you look at how good he is at doing things in a serial fashion. And then if you were to look at pick your mindfulness teacher, they do exactly the same thing. The activities just happen to be different. And so I I do think that training that single tasking and training, so the power of your attention, A, and focus, and then B, the ability to step outside of yourself or observe your thought processes are 100% across the board the commonality. Yeah, no, I'm definitely seeing it. It's funny, for the first half of my life, I would access that pretty much only through external, highly physical experiences and environments. So, like, I was a mountain biker, and I would ride, you know, fast and single track. So, if I lost that, yeah, yeah, my yeah. head's in a tree. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, was, I would rock climb, same thing, you know. And so, I would do all these things where physically there wasn't, it wasn't an option not to be there. Yeah. And, and the moment you, that you lost it, you knew. Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> penal, you're penalized. Because right, it hurt, <laughs> you know, and you're sort of scraping stuff off your body. And it took me a long time to, to sort of, uh, so I've had a seated practice now for, since 2010, I guess. Um, mm. 
pretty much every single morning. What, what does it look like? And it's 25 minutes. So I start with about four minutes of just some very basic pranayama. Mm-hmm. basic sort of trapezoidal breathing. So, you know, like in for a certain amount, pause for a certain amount, out for twice that, and then pause right. for a certain amount. And then I just drop into about a 20 to 25 minute, um, really gentle breath-oriented mindfulness practice. And I didn't, I didn't come to that voluntarily, even though I had in the, in the middle of what the things that I've done, I owned a yoga studio and I taught yoga and meditation for seven years. My dirty secret was that... <laughs> I was having a lot of trouble developing yeah. my own practice. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I would always get it moving my body. Like that was the way that I would find that place. Mm-hmm. You know, the athlete's flow, or playing music, or something like that. And um, I didn't come to my seated practice, and I came to it on my knees. Yeah, I was literally like, there was some really just really tough stuff going on in my life, and I was like, maybe this will help. Um, and and I, th- the reason I do pranayama in the beginning of it, is actually because. I was so distressed when I first started this practice, I couldn't sit without freaking out. Oh yeah, I was so anxious. So I was. Which I think there. it's common. I think it's really common, yeah. also. And then because I'm and then like, people start freaking out that they're freaking out. Right. Exactly. It becomes this like <laughs> awful spiral down. The You're like, ah! why can't I win at meditating? I'm failing. Meditation's killing me, man. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's uh, it becomes this evil experience. But um, but it brought me from a really dark place to baseline, and then it brought me from baseline to being so much more present and aware and creative and able to see and do so much more. Um, but I don't know if I would have come to that, but for the fact of going into this dark hole. Uh, the, the thing that led me to is I have tinnitus, so I have a, I have a sound in my head yep. 24-7. And I would, you know, everyone tells you there's nothing you can do, so I was like, well, let me try and cobble together what I know about these different practices and see if it works. And in fact, it's changed my life. And the fact that as we sit here, that sound is still in my head, I often wonder, is that the reason that I keep meditating? Like, if mm. it went away one day, right? would I stop? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think because we are so primed to just respond to present pain. Yeah. You know, and it's like if all the good practices, like if the pain just went away, I mean, it's like, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, heart, heart attack uh, patients, like post-cardiac rehab vast majority of them revert to all the same behaviors. Oh, sure. Like once they're far enough from the pain because they don't feel it anymore. Yeah, it's very true. And I would just add to what you were saying for people listening and you may have other recommendations, but if you're very skeptical of any type of meditation or feel like you cannot meditate (laughs) or don't want to meditate, which I did for a very, very long time and I always found solace through exercise and uh, so on, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I think that it can be an alternative, and there are people in, uh, say, my latest book who who certainly use different vehicles. But there is a separate book called Ten Percent Happier mm. by Dan, Dan Harris, Harris yeah. which I think is a good skeptics guide yep. to how you can take the edge off without losing your edge, if that makes sense. And also a very good writer and uh, some very, very funny parts in that book. But he had a panic attack on live television Meh. and was at the top of his game and realized, you know what? Like, maybe this needs some type of <laughs> some type of therapy or some type of addressing. I don't know what tool and then ended up figuring it out. But uh, that, that's a good starting point for I think people who are skeptical or have tried and failed previously to try any of this stuff. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. That it's a really nice point of entry too. And then, like you said, there are apps like Headspace, which kind of make it really gentle to enter into the practice. Yeah, and and for instance, I mean, I've done TM, and I still occasionally do TM, but I enjoy guided meditations a lot yeah. if they're well done. And I've been using so for the last forty days, and I know because they've helped you keep track. I've been using Headspace myself yeah. as I'm traveling and so on. And I will bounce back and forth. Then maybe I'll do some Vipassana. Maybe I'll do some TM. But it's I like having something like TM in the back pocket so that I'm not totally reliant on technology to do a session. Yeah. But when available, I will generally use headphones and a guide to meditation. Good Life Project is supported by BetterHelp. So many of us are going through a lot right now and could really use someone to talk to and Friends and family, they can be great. But talking with someone who is truly qualified to help you feel better can be a real game changer. And BetterHelp can do just that. They're the world's largest online counseling service. You can get started no matter where you are in the world quickly. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Then you schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own space. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel you'd like to try someone else. BetterHelp also gives you access to an incredible range of expertise, which might not be available where you are. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid may be available. So visit betterhelp.com slash goodlife. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash goodlife and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And as a special offer for Good Life Project listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash goodlife. How do you feel the practice has... Um shifted so there are like two sides that people generally make associations with one is not dying and then one is accessing higher levels of performance sort of like mm-hmm. from a western mindset obviously classically there's a whole different reason that you engage in these practices um hello new york city oh yeah just in case you thought we were <laughs> in santa fe new mexico we're gonna get everything here. It's like the <laughs> listeners are all used to it now they're like i'm right there with you man the uh most of your focus has been on um, the performance side. Like, how does this weave through people's ability to access the highest levels of performance um, on a very personal level mm-hmm. for you? Yeah. Because you've been through some dark times also. Mm-hmm. What has it done on the other side of the spectrum for you? Not the performance side, but the making Tim be okay in, in, a, in a fast-changing, uncertain world side of things. I think in both instances, the answer is somewhat the same. And I'm borrowing this analogy from Andy. <laughs> Whittacombe, who is the uh, Headspace Headspace narrator and co-creator. But the the image of, or the contrast between standing inside looking at the glass at the storm versus standing in the storm and having the rain stinging your eyes, soaking you wet, the wind whipping through your ears and deafening you, it's, it's, it's a profound difference. And it's one of being... I mean, the way that I've thought about it prior to getting that analogy was, and this is this is an analogy that I've used before, just looking, looking at a washing machine versus being inside the washing machine. And that applies to feeling better, performing better, fill in the blank better. 
in so much as you become a better observer of your thoughts and feelings so that you can preempt overreactions, whether that's a hair trigger temper, whether that is some type of self-flagellation or self-loathing that's triggered by certain things. And you can, you can start to see it before you're at a full boil. You can, you can see the tiny bubbles rising to the surface and you're like, oh wait, I'm feeling self-loathing because this. Okay, let me circumvent that and redirect it and then phew, just by noting it, suddenly you've defused it and it has 10% of the impact it would have instead of 100%. And that certainly applies everywhere else. If you're on a single track on a mountain bike or you are about to do a max deadlift, your ability to be present, state-focused while not overreacting positively or negatively, and we could talk about that. I don't think, for instance, stoicism is neutering joy, as some people might think. Uh, and that is closely related to a lot of this. But becoming less reactive, I think, helps you equally in the achievement sphere and in the appreciation sphere. For me, the latter needs more work. Hmm. I'm a I'm a hardwired type A personality. So the setting a timeline with a goal and steps to get there and backing out of it and all of that boring mechanical stuff, I'm very good at. The hey, dude, maybe everything's fine the way it is. <laughs> Part? No! Oh, yeah, I'm like, what? Are you, like, are you, what a sad state of affairs. Are you really just like complacently happy with, like, that's the inner monologue or dialogue probably in my head. So the latter is, is, has really benefited from that. And I would say also, hypothetically, if I lost, and I don't think you do, but if I lost 10, 15% of my, edge per se, this is a common concern among hard driving people who are thinking about meditation. I'm happy with the trade. <laughs> what are you working so hard for anyway? Or what are you yeah. driving so f hard and fast for anyway? Generally, if you peel back the onion and ask why, okay, why, okay, why, then you get to, I want to improve my quality of life. Well, if you're yeah. constantly focused on the future, you're going to be trapped in anxiety. So that's not a good life, not a good life. <laughs> Yeah. So let's let's take a second to stop planning and just say, "Wow, I'm really happy with like how the couch feels on my ass today, and that I'm not breathing in the air from Beijing right now. This mug that I'm drinking my coffee out of uh, is such a just such a pretty mug. You have a gorgeous mug here, white and orange. It's just, I mean, obviously very carefully crafted, but it's a nice mug. It's like, and you notice three things like that, your day is going to be a better day. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I um. I had a chance to sit down with Milton Glaser a couple of years back yeah. uh, and tape a conversation. He's just a stunning guy. He's it's one of the com few conversations, you know, we both had hundreds of amazing conversations with just incredible people where I walked away and and I noticed myself thinking I would live his life. Because and and one of the things he said to me was that he knew what he was here to do when he was six years old. And it it was in some way, shape or form to make beauty. Yeah. And he has from a really young age had this ability to notice and appreciate and create beauty. And it's, it's led him to have astonishing impact. And for those who don't know, he's a, probably the most iconic living designer. Um, he also created New York Magazine. He's built so many brands you have no idea, actually, that he created. And he's, he taught for like 50 years. He's taught some of the leading designers and creators and makers on the planet. So the impact he's had is astonishing. And yet at the same time, 
the choices he's made to sort of preserve that sense of simplicity and appreciation of beauty in his life are amazing. I mean, he works in the same small studio. He could have built a monster firm. He didn't. Yeah. You know, he works four days a week and then goes and hangs out with his wife three days a week on the weekends in upstate. And I just, I was like, wow, that is really interesting. And so it was fascinating because not too long after that, I took sort of like a basic strengths test and appreciation of beauty was one of my top things. So this basic strengths test, I want, I, so Milton, I'm fascinated by because yeah. you and I have a common friend in Debbie Millman. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of common friends, but she talks about yeah, Milton constantly. and his impact and the exercises that he had her do. But the, the basic strengths test, uh, not to take us off the rails, but I'm curious why did you take it? So I've taken, and, I've and, taken two. Okay. And what, what do you hope to get from it? Curi- so curiosity, right? So the, the two ones I've taken are the, the VIA, which came out of UPenn and Marty Seligman and Chris Peterson's mm-hmm. work, which is fundamentally character traits. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's based in virtues. And then there's a classic Clifton Strengths Finder, you know, like, which is based more in, from my understanding, sort of skills, talents, abilities. And I took them both because I felt like, okay, so... First, I was just curious, like, what would actually tell me? Right. Like, do I agree with it or do I just think it's complete caca? <laughs> you should be a dictator in right. a third world country. <laughs> right, <What>? Exactly. <laughs> ah, moving. Honey, yeah. pack up the house. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, grab my Nicaraguan visa. <laughs> um, no, because I'm, I'm fascinated. The way I look at life is that, you know, fundamentally a good life is, is a deliberate life. Hmm. A good life is a life where we're, we have a sense of agency and we choose to the extent that we can. Obviously, there's stuff that we just can't choose. It just happens. But when we have the opportunity to say yes or no, you know, like, it's understanding what to say yes or no to. And my question has always been, well, how can I understand what to say yes or no to if I don't understand sort of the, the essence of who I am? Did you find them, did they, were they satisfying in the answers you got out of them? You know, it's interesting. On one Because I'm trying to figure, look, I mean, we're yeah. talking about the sort of the... Uh, the beginning of a year yeah. as we're recording this. I'm thinking a lot about this right now. Yeah. I, I, I found them useful, but not certainly not conclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, so I kind of add that to a whole other basket of stuff that I tend to do when mm-hmm. I'm reflecting and trying to figure out, okay, what am I about? And like, where am I focused? And what's meaningful to me at this moment, like in this season of my life? So I found them useful. And what was interesting is in taking both of them, you know, so the the character traits or the character strengths one is kind of like, it's not this is what you're good at. It's like fundamentally, you know, here are 25 different parts of you. And the top five, and these are essentially, these are your virtues, the best parts of you. They're, they're qualities of who you are. And when you look at the top five with the VIA ones, the idea is the more that you move into the world um, from a place of that where you can bring whatever that quality is to every interaction, the more fulfilled you are. Do you remember your top five? You said appreciation of oh, beauty. God, you know, no, I just wrote them down this week. It was okay. like a love of learning, uh, appreciation of beauty, creativity. Um, uh, I'm blanking on the other ones. Three out, um, of, three out of five ain't bad. Yeah, right? Free <laughs> <laughs> breakfast. Yeah. Um, and so then my other curiosity was because the what's probably the more common one, the, the Gallup-based one, the other clip right. and strengths finder, is more based on skills and abilities. Um, my question was, have I built a life where my sort of top-rated skills would be emanations of the, the deeper character traits of who I am. Um, because I wanted to see, is there a misalignment here? Right. Okay. You know? and, and so you're trying to bridge, I guess, the results of those two tests yeah. over to your yes-no yeah. decisions. And I think in an interesting way, if there's a really big divergence between those two, it hints at the potential of you building a set of 
capabilities and potentially a livelihood and a life that may be more influenced by external expectations than by the essence of who you are. And that's sure. part of my curiosity around that. Whether it's expectations or external inputs. Yeah, exactly. Right? And actually what prompted me to think a lot about this was looking at... <laughs> so I've uh, artfully ignored slash neglected my inbox for six to eight weeks. I've been very intermittent, and so I have on the order of 3,200 or 3,300 on email. <laughs> I and, thought I was bad. Yeah, you, like, crushed and, me on And that. that's 10 or 20% of what comes into yeah, yeah. my assistant team. And I was looking at it, and there are, and this, this maybe relates to uh, entrepreneur Derek Sivers a lot more than that, but his hell yes or no framework yeah. <laughs> for making decisions. But I was looking at this, the inbox, and I'm like, okay, in the first 30, there are a lot of interesting opportunities but interesting is a nebulous adjective and i use it very deliberately in this case Uh, so i've been thinking quite a bit about how i need to improve my filter for yes no decisions what if you don't mind me asking what have you have you come to any conclusions about what uh anything new to say no to or new ways to say no for yourself um not new ways to say no. I, I've actually thought about that a lot over the recent years because I'm somebody who likes to serve. Um, yeah. But I'm also hardcore. So here's another internal metric that I use for myself. Maybe it's helpful to you to a certain extent. Um, I believe that we're all wired on some level to be a maker or a helper. Mm-hmm. And then there's a continuum between those two. But my sense has been meeting most people that most of us are wired more towards one end of that spectrum. But we teach ourselves how to function on the other side because it's necessary to survive or build what we need to build. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, I think, you know, so um, what's interesting for me is I love to see lights go on in other people's lives. And at the same time, I'm at my happiest when I'm in my cave researching and creating and making stuff. So I've learned how to say no to a lot of people because I've learned that cave time for me is really, really important. Yeah. But I also want to say in a way which is which is elevating and you know like you know, we're both authors right you know gotten a lot of rejection letters in the early part, part oh, yeah. of my career and then some were not pretty you know so i never want to do that you know so i'm always trying to figure out how do we how do i language it in a way where it's like it feels like there's dignity in the process there are definitely more things i say no to and that's um the other part thing that i know about myself is i'm also much more wired towards the introverted side of the spectrum and i've learned that when i'm just out and forward facing too much i just I end up a hollow shell. Yeah. So you, are you similar? I'm an introvert who can yeah. who can be an extrovert for limited periods of time. Yeah, same thing. But it's like holding my breath. It's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's very taxing. Yeah. And there are elements of it that I enjoy. But uh, if I do, for instance, this is part of the reason I do very few book signings. If I do a book signing, A, I'm not going to just push people through 10 seconds a person. That's not how I want to do it. If people are traveling in particularly for it or anything like that, which means book signing could be three, four hours and I need to be on because the person stepping up might've been in line for two hours to talk to me for 30 seconds. So I have to be on, on six gear. And after that, I'll need two days of rest. Yeah. I'm the same way. I mean, that's why when I go to events, if like, I'm, you're probably the same way. Like, I, I love being on stage. I love speaking for like the 45 minutes to an hour where I'm up there. Yeah. And then I run for the woods. <laughs> yeah. I've started doing more of that because I realize otherwise the tax, the, the penalty I pay is just too high. Yeah. And it's not that I don't want to hang out with people. It's just I know myself and I know that yep. I'm going to be empty. And if I go then work the crowd, I'm going to be wrecked for the next week. Yeah. Um, so it's pure survival. Um, it sounds like we're really similar in, in that yeah. way. Um, 
couple other things I want to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. You spent a lot of your, it seems like, adult life in your career really focusing on deconstructing process for expertise and mastery and high performance and created a really powerful canon. And when I, when I look at it, um, there seems to be something that I'm not finding. And I've, been, I've become curious about it. And that is a, a conversation and an exploration around the cost side of it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm looking for the story around when you sit down with somebody who's world-class at this or this or this or this. And maybe it's just because it's not, you know, that's not what you feel like your job is. Like, your job is let me deconstruct the process so I can understand it and maybe allow others to transfer into it on a level, what, whatever level is appropriate for them. I always wonder, you know, what did this cost you? <laughs> along the way. Sure. Are you asking me or are you asking me why? Or, I, I or guess, is the question uh, more of why is there not more of that? I think it's both, actually. I'm okay. curious with you personally, and then I'm curious yeah. about, you know, like, does that inform the bigger sort of conversation? Yeah, I would say that I tend to back into that indirectly when I'm interviewing, and I'm doing it more and more often now. Mm-hmm. Not so much what does it did it cost you explicitly, for similar reasons that I don't ask people, what are your favorite books? I will ask them, what books have you gifted yeah. the most? Because there is, I think you tend to get pat answers or abstract high-level answers uh, for certain questions. And favorite book has its own issues because people have a primacy recency bias, so they'll right. just spew out something that's a good book they remember from the last few years generally. What I will very often ask is, or I'll say something along the lines of some people listening might say that what you do cannot be done by other people because you're always confident. You're always on point. So let's talk about that. Is that true? And assuming it's not, could you tell us about one of the darkest periods you've had and how you found your way out of that? And by asking about the darkest period, we usually get the answer to what did it cost you because they're making compromises or sacrifices that then cause them to implode or become unbalanced in some way. And, that I think is very important to explore. And that is another reason why I've really made a deliberate choice to talk about a lot of the weaknesses in the people that I interview, a lot of the dark, because the highlight reel is helpful, but it's a very incomplete picture. And if you want the highlight reel, you better be able to take the inevitable punch in the face that you're going to take. Uh, So, that is, that's my answer to, I suppose, part A. In terms of what has it cost me, uh, every decision you make costs you something. And if you look at the word itself, much like incision, decision is to cut away. For every choice you make, you're generally blocking off other options. If you take one path, one fork in the road, by definition, you are not on the other path. And certainly, there are ways, or those who would say, you know, the best option is the option that creates more options. And I do think that's there's some truth to that. So I make, I try to, whenever possible, make choices that, and focus on projects. And this is borrowed in part from Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, who calls it systems thinking, which, mm-hmm. the wording of which I think is a little confusing. But I try to choose projects that help me to develop and accumulate skills and relationships so that even if that project fails, 
over time. Cumulatively, there's no way I cannot win per se. Cost, I would say that uh, I'm, I've never been happier. I'm really, I feel like I'm in a very good place. I feel like I'm taking care of the people around me well. And that hasn't always been true. Uh, so up until, certainly up until 2004, and then for a period of time, I would say around 2010 to 2013, also a very difficult period for me. 2015 was a tough year as well. Uh, the lesson that I need to learn repeatedly is if you don't take care of yourself, you will not be able to take care of the people around you well. And when I violate that, then I pay many different costs. <laughs> mm. uh, which kind of actually moves into uh, one of the last things I wanted to circle around to with you, which is um, I felt like something happened in a conversation that you had not too long ago with B.J. Miller. Mm. Um, for those who don't know, a palliative care physician in San Francisco who helps oversee Zen Hospice, um, there was a shift in you yeah. that happened, and I feel like it's become more of a persistent and growing thread to something more existential. In a sense, uh, existential in a weird way, perhaps. So I get asked a lot, you know, which of your interviews is your favorite? And I can't do that, not because I'm trying to be yeah. polite, but I, the, and this may be true for you as well, but you know, the Tim Ferriss show for me is a very personal, in some ways, selfish endeavor. I go and find people I want to talk to because I think they can help me figure out something that I'm having trouble figuring out, whether it's a challenge or an insecurity or weakness, whatever it might be. Uh, or they're just a domain expert and I want to, see what's beneath the surface. BJ I'd wanted to interview for many years. He's also a triple amputee who's electrocuted in college and lost three of his limbs. He's helped more than a thousand people die. And in that conversation, I wanted to talk to him for years. Not This is well before the podcast. I just wanted to track him down and talk to him. And I don't know why it took me so long, but he then came to me indirectly and I was like, he didn't approach me. A friend of his did because BJ doesn't go out hunting for media. And I go, okay, this is a sign of some type, or I'll take it as such. And what really struck me, among many other things, there are a lot of things from that conversation with BJ that have stuck with me. The one that has stuck with me perhaps the most, well, I'll mention a few. The little things are the big things. So for quelling or mitigating existential angst at the end of life for some of his patients, I've asked him what some of the best tools are in the toolkit. And he said, baking cookies. Because the smell, the taste, the communal enjoyment, it's on behalf of nothing in the future. It is all present tense. Mm -hmm. And he gave a few other examples. And I then I asked him, well, what if you had someone who's maybe in a depressive state or very introverted, they don't want to have that social experience? What are the three things you would give them? And he mentioned a comedy, a movie. He mentioned... Uh, plenty of time to stare off into space. That was one thing you would give them. Mm -hmm. And the third was a, a book of Mark Rothko paintings, an, an art book. And for those who don't know Mark Rothko, uh, these are paintings of colored boxes that sell for $80 to $100 million. <laughs> Abstract art. And the point being, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but that he wants to help cultivate their ability to find and see beauty in things that are meaningless or that are purposeless. And that was really profound to me 
to not sit by the bedside and have the big religious or spiritual conversation every time you sit next to someone who's going to die in four weeks, because that's not how it works. Uh, and I've heard this repeatedly from people who volunteered at Zen Hospice, for instance, and, uh, or worked in palliative care. It's like if you expect every conversation to be this deep TED talk on the meaning of life, you're going to be disappointed. Like it's 99% the mundane, which are the important things. And to not necessarily stress yourself out over the big why me, why now, what's the point questions, and instead to deliberately cultivate the appreciation of beauty in purposelessness, meaninglessness. And it sounds depressing, but it's really liberating when you start to contemplate that and practice it. And for instance, I mean, two of my, I'm not going to call them resolutions, but themes that I want to follow this year for myself are beauty and absurdity. Hmm. And they go together very nicely to do things that are beautiful or absurd that don't necessarily have any explicit end goal or point to them. And I don't view that as a waste. I think that a lot of breakthroughs can come from taking your eye off of the productivity <laughs> track for a little bit at the very least and focusing on that. And so that that's had a very direct impact on my thinking and greatly improved, I think, my quality of life. I mean, there are other things from that interview I won't get into right now, but star, I call it star therapy, the, the way that he looks at the stars yeah. and meditates, very similar to how Ed Cook and a handful of other people, another person I interviewed recently does the same thing. So this, the, the, this, this oddly common activity of stargazing at night as a means of reducing anxiety is another thing that I've taken with me with, uh, from BJ. So when I walk my dog at night, I do that almost every night nah. if, it's, if it's clear enough. So those are, those are a few, but I, I would say that for BJ effectively giving you an out so that you don't feel compelled to obsess on these huge existential questions that may not have answers in the first place or satisfactory answers uh, has been a huge breath of relief for me yeah. <laughs> in a sense. And oddly enough has allowed me to feel more at peace. Yeah, no, I get that. And also, I mean, you're somebody who seems just so massively wired for deconstruction and process and analysis that to almost sort of have somebody validate, like actually there's a famous uh, Buddhist parable where, you know, like thousands of monks have gathered, you know, and the teacher is up and, and everyone's waiting for the teaching, and he takes a flower and holds it up in the air. Do you know this? No. He holds it up in the air, and all the other monks are looking at each other like, what, 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 what does it mean, what does it mean, what does it mean, what does it mean? And like, you know, way out in the middle is one monk just sitting there smiling. <laughs> and the teacher looks at the monk, he's like, you're the one who gets it. It's like, it's not about anything. Yeah. You know, it's just how beautiful is this flower? Yeah. You know, and I think... To me, it's it from the out completely not knowing you in any meaningful way. You know, before this, from the outside looking in, it's felt a little bit like something shifted in that conversation in you, or something about the conversations you've been having afterwards, or something about your energy feels like you're starting to like be a little bit more of that one monk and a little bit less of the others. <laughs> I don't know. Or it's possible. Is it's that a conscious aspiration for you? Uh. I would say so. I, I don't devalue the the analytical yeah. machinery and the observational acuity that I've tried to develop. 
I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I think they can be treated as mutually exclusive. And I think I have made that mistake in the past. (laughs) So you mentioned flowers. Another thing that I do is I will, and I was taught this by an ex-girlfriend who deserves a lot of, I'll nickname her Natasha here, but she owes a uh, I owe her a lot of gratitude for a number of things, including the jar of awesome, which is in tools of Titans. But I will stop there two or three places every time I walk my dog where I'll stop and literally smell the roses. And what's so cute is Molly, my dog, <laughs> because she's accustomed to it, she will also stop and smell the grass <laughs> oh, <that's awesome. laughs> around the flowers. <laughs> and it's just lovely. It's just this tiny oh, little great. lovely thing. And if you can't, what I've learned for myself is if you can't, if you can't enjoy the little things or you don't take the time to enjoy the little things, similarly, if you don't take the time to celebrate the small wins, you're never going to be able to really enjoy the big things and you're never going to really be able to savor the big wins. Nah. You have to practice small. Completely agree. So let's come full circle. The name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that phrase out to you, to live a good life, what comes up? To live the good life, I think that for me it's simple. You, you test assumptions you don't assume malice, you ask questions, and you try to make people better than you are. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If the stories and ideas in any way moved you, I would so appreciate if you would take just a few extra seconds for two quick things. One, if it's touched you in some way, if there's some idea or moment in the story or in the conversation that you really feel like you would share with somebody else, that it would make a difference in somebody else's life. Take a moment and whatever app you're using, just share this episode with somebody who you think it'll make a difference for. Email it if that's the easiest thing, whatever is easiest for you. And then of course, if you're compelled, subscribe so that you can stay a part of this continuing experience. My greatest hope with this podcast is not just to produce moments um, and share stories and ideas that impact one person listening, but to let it create a conversation, to let it serve as a catalyst for the elevation of all of us together, collectively, because that's how we rise. When stories and ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And I would love to invite you to participate on that level. Thank you so much as always for your intention, for your attention, for your heart. And um, I wish you only the best. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.